podcast. I am here with Teresa Bukovinak. So Teresa is the founder and executive director of Pro-Life San Francisco, and she's also the new president of Democrats for Life, which is so exciting. I'm excited to hear you talk about that. Um, But we're talking about a couple things today. Uh, It's a pretty contentious moment in American politics, actually. And I didn't even mention this to you, Teresa, but, you know, before, um, before we started talking, but Last night, um, obviously, we saw a big group of Trump supporters storm the U.S. Capitol. So things are as partisan and polarized as I think they've ever been. Um, And I'm curious, I I love hearing from you on like the Democratic perspective on the pro-life issue, because you as a pro-life Democrat are a pretty rare voice in you know, in our country today, um, but also a really, really important voice. Um, so I don't know, like just the present moment right now, we we saw what happened yesterday at the Capitol, Georgia, there were some pretty significant losses or what feels like a loss to me as a pro-life person. And, you know, you as a Democrat, maybe you have a different perspective, but um, so I'm just curious, like, give me your, your take on like where things are at right now. It's a crazy time. It really is. And in a lot of ways, I'm still processing myself everything that is happening and has happened. Yeah. Um, as pro-life Democrats, uh, you know, the Georgia races, we're in the same position with that as we are with the presidential race, that there are obvious benefits to us as Democrats, um, seeing Democrats, you know, take those positions, but obviously huge drawbacks in terms of our pro-life position and what that potentially means, especially concerning the Hyde Amendment. And I think the reality is that people need to remember that although you rarely see voices like mine, I'm not a minority voice. I'm not even a minority Mm -hmm. voice in the Democratic Party when it comes to opposition to late-term abortion. Uh, So we're 21 million strong in terms of Democrats who actually identify as being pro-life. So we are a silenced majority um, Mm -hmm. in this nation and, um, you know, I think that pro-life Democrats obviously have been opposed to the Trump presidency from the beginning, um, you know, broadly speaking. And, um, you know, going back to 2016, you know, I protested the day after um, Trump was elected um, because I was horrified. I I had voted against Trump in that election and I had very little hope um, that he would be able to be a, a significant voice for life. Now, Trump obviously did some um, life-affirming things in his time as president, um, but I think that our biggest fears as pro-life Democrats have truly co- have come true, uh, that we were afraid that this alignment with Trump would um, be detrimental to um, our ability to reach people on the other side, that the, mm. the Trump issue has been so incredibly polarizing now to the point where we see, you know, many Republicans coming out and people who voted for Trump calling for, you know, for Trump to step down at this point. So it's obviously a very chaotic time. And I know that you and I are coming at it from from different points of view, but that's pretty much where pro-life Democrats are in this. It's kind of like, look, this is the situation we predicted all along. And and we're we're scared as pro-life people what that means for the future of our ability to 
actually reach people on this issue and to get more people to identify with the pro-life label. I think that, you know, we, we see that support for or identification with the, the, the label pro-life mm-hmm. is consistently falling amongst young people, even though we see um, support for abortion restrictions staying basically the same. Um, and we want to call more people into that label and, and, and make people realize that a lot of the positions that they have actually are very pro-life and are life affirming and, and get yeah. them to see themselves in the pro-life movement. But now I think so many people just see it as being pro-Trump that you're not really totally. pro-life, you know, unless you were pro-Trump yeah. and therefore it's like, well, people aren't going to see themselves in the movement as easily as we might've been able to, if we had put, you know, half of our resources as a movement into, you know, supporting efforts on the left to, yep. to mobilize pro-life Democrats rather than just putting yep. all of our eggs in the Trump basket. In the Trump basket. That is, you know what, that is so interesting to hear you talk about it that way. I haven't, I hadn't really thought that thought about it, but it makes sense what you're saying that it, and it, I mean, what you're saying is definitely true. And that I think that pro-life people have been lumped into this pro-Trump category. And it's not to say that, like you said, that's not to say that I don't, that I don't think that president Trump has done some things that have been life affirming. Um, but we know that there's, there's two sides to that coin, even with his administration. Right. And so I guess I have a couple of follow-up questions for you there. Um, do you think that, and maybe you see this even more as a pro-life Democrat um, because you are, I think, more exposed to people who have an opposing viewpoint from the abortion, I'm sorry, from the pro-life perspective. Do you think that the pro-life movement has a branding problem? Like, yeah, I think that that, 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 yeah. (laughs) I think that pro-life Democrats have been pretty much unanimously saying that for some time. Um, Mm -hmm. But you know, we haven't been able to unify under like, you know, a branding concept and, and maybe we don't, maybe we all do need to work under different brands and, and, and I respect that. Um, but I definitely think that we are making the pro-life movement too hard to get into. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's very, it's obviously very conservative and very overtly religious in a lot of ways. And that is a, a barrier for so many people. And that's what, you know, pro-life Democrats have been saying all along that we want Mm -hmm. to show, um, you know, people in our party that they can be pro-life too, that they, it doesn't mean being Republican or, you know, being religious or being conservative. And yet it means that now more than it ever has, or it seems to at least. Um, And, and of course, as pro-life Democrats, we have hope that we will be able to change that, that, that perhaps this is a moment when um, a lot of people do realize the power that pro-life Democrats really do have and, and that, that abandoning the cause of pro-life Democrats or, or just giving it minimal support is not a winning strategy, ultimately, that we have right. to work many angles of this issue. And the reality is that the biggest pillar of power for the abortion industry is by far the Democratic Party. And if we're mm-hmm. ignoring the 21 million Democrats that are existing there without you know, a lot of visibility, um, mm-hmm. then we are, we're missing a huge opportunity to bring, to broaden our movement, to diversify yeah. and to ultimately win. Yeah, well, and so that's a great, that was gonna be my next question is why are, so many, uh, why are all of these pro-life Democrats so silent on this issue? Is it, is it 
the branding problem of the pro-life movement that they feel like they can't out themselves? Is it just, they think they're the only one? I mean, what, yeah, what is um, it there? It's a spending issue. You know, we're outspent mm -hmm. by the abortion yeah. industry. So it's very, it seems very easy for them at this point to silence pro-life democratic voices, uh, which are the ones that are truly the most threatening to them. Um, yeah. And when you don't see or hear anyone else around you voicing opinions that are similar to yours, you just don't have confidence in your own point of view. And you know, mm -hmm. for me, I didn't even come out as a pro-life person until I met other secular pro-life people. Even though I'd harbored pro-life opinions for years, I never saw myself as being a part of the pro-life movement or being you know, able to exist in that world. And although it has been challenging for me, um, right. I, I that is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about creating an environment for people that don't fit the mold because you have to see other people like you in order to feel brave enough to attract more. Like, And the more yeah. people that come out, the more people will come to our cause. And that is the only way that we are going to be able to tip the scales of this. We're not gonna be able to outspend the abortion industry. We don't sell anything. We aren't an industry, um, but what yeah. we can outdo them in is people power. And if we're ignoring yeah. 21 million Democrats, then that's really just not super yeah, helpful yeah. Um, to our cause. Yeah, wow. That's, that is so interesting. And I, I, that's funny too. I've never heard anyone say it that way that we don't sell anything. We're not an industry, but it's true because I mean, that's, that's where they get a lot of their power. Obviously I think it's where they get most of their power because to your point, I think we know that it, the, it is a minority of people in this country who believe that a baby should be aborted in the third trimester. Um, that's right. yeah. Wow. That's super interesting. So I, I mean, there's a couple of different directions that we could go with that. I'm, I'm curious maybe to talk to you a little bit about the Hyde Amendment too, because I think that's something that's going to come up. But what I really want to get your take on, not just be, not just from the perspective of you as, as a pro-life person who's also a Democrat, but also from the perspective of you being in California and you as, you know, being the founder and executive director of Pro-Life San Francisco have been around for much of David Daleiden and Sandra Merritt's cases over the last few years and you know you have been I know you have been present in the room for a lot of that um, a lot of that when it was going on and I want to hear from you on Xavier Becerra um, because so for those of you who are listening who don't know Xavier Becerra is currently the Attorney General of California he was just announced um, the Biden President Biden or President-elect Biden just announced that he will be his department head for health and human services um, went after the inauguration, that process will begin. And Xavier Becerra, from the perspective of the pro-life movement, is a pretty dangerous figure. I mean, he was in Congress prior to being, um, prior to um, becoming attorney general of California. And he has pursued a lot of the legal action that's been taken against, um, against David Daleiden and Sandra Merritt, um, who were the, they were founded Center for Medical Progress and were the whistleblowers behind the videos that revealed that Planned Parenthood was trafficking baby body parts. Um, so, I mean, there's a whole list of things Xavier Becerra has been involved in, but I'm curious, Teresa, from your perspective, what, what do you think, what's your biggest concern um, with this whole thing? And what should we be paying attention to um, over the next couple of weeks as this unfolds? 
Becerra has positioned himself from the very beginning um, of his career as a pro-abortion extremist. And he has shown that he is absolutely, there doesn't seem to be any bounds to um, his desire or ability to do their bidding. Um, so that has always been a concern um, since he has become the Attorney General of California. We have protested him on several occasions for, like you said, you know, he is literally prosecuting David Daleiden for, um, you know, doing the work that undercover journalists do every day in the state of California. And he's doing mm -hmm. that simply because he was exposing Planned Parenthood. Um, so, and Becerra, he has, he's just done a lot of unethical things in his time. He's been behind mm -hmm a lot of efforts to expand abortion and especially um, expanding fetal tissue research. He, he gathered yeah. several AGs together, um, basically begging for funding from the federal government to do fetal tissue research during the COVID pandemic. Um, so UCSF, as you, know, wow. you and many of your viewers may know, has been a major target of pro-life San Francisco um, for the last year and a half, they are engaged in horrific unethical fetal tissue research um, that relies on monthly supplies of viable uh, human babies that are either dismembered alive without feticide or born alive uh, through a, an induction, um, through induced labor. Mm -hmm. um, so these are really, really horrific crimes against humanity that have totally happened on Becerra's watch that have been mm -hmm. absolutely brought to his attention. Instead of just sweeping it under the rug, he's actually gone the opposite direction and, and called for more funding for this. So right. like he's extreme in every sense of the word. And now this concept that he could take over as health secretary without any health background whatsoever, just like a background in like doing the abortion industry's bidding. And we know um, that HHS is pretty much the most powerful institution when it comes to mm -hmm. protecting um, the lives and dignity of, of unborn human beings. That being in his hands is extremely concerning. I mean, it's, it's really frustrating as an activist to spend years protesting someone and then to see them potentially assume um, this crucial role. And similar mm -hmm. to our experience up. with yeah. Kamala Harris, because you know she, she's been a local figure in the Bay Area for, for many years. And mm -hmm. as we protested her, um, you know, we think that that might, you know, bring about justice in the situation. And yet here she is advancing in her career. So we really see the abortion industry just, you know, doing everything that everything they can to support um, mm -hmm. both her and Becerra um, in their journey to obtaining more power in this nation and ultimately being able to wield that on behalf Truly. of this industry. Yeah, it's that is it is really interesting to watch how some of these people who've really, like you said, done the bidding of Planned Parenthood and the and you know the rest of the industry too. I mean, like, and actually, if you want to talk a little bit more about UCSF's um, work with um, fetal uh, fetal tissue research, that's a piece of this that, like you said, it's an industry, and that's a piece of this industry that I think a lot of pro-lifers like that is not even on their radar because it's. It's so, um, it's so eerie to me, you know, like who knew that people that, they, that, that in this country, there was, there's government funded scientific research that's occurring on fetal tissue and that that's perfectly legal. It's perfectly legal. I mean, I remember I listened to a podcast episode that you did. Um, gosh, when was this? Yeah. You might've done it with Kristen Hawkins, actually, maybe two, a year or two ago that you guys talked about 
some of this fetal tissue research stuff. And I like, couldn't believe what I was hearing. And I went online and just tried to search, like buying like, uh, certain tissue samples from fetuses. You can literally order them online. Like it was just, it blew my mind. Do you want to talk about that really quick? Just give us like a you know, what, what, what is the, what do we need to know? What are the, what are the things we need to know about fetal tissue research and what is happening at University of California, San Francisco? Well, the, to me, the most shocking um, bit about fetal tissue research is that most of it relies on um, very late term fetuses, not to be conflated mm -hmm. with like, you know, stem cell research or something that, you know, we're mm -hmm. also against, but mm -hmm. it, you know, it's not to be conflated with something that happens to like seven day old embryos. We are talking about mm -hmm. infants, um, pre-born babies between the ages of 18 and 24 weeks um, supplied to these projects on a monthly basis. Um, and then of course, without the use of digoxin, the way that they, they cannot be done humanely. Like it's, it, even if you are like supportive of a woman's right to choose, so to speak, like the idea that we would like dismember fully alive a viable baby that can live on their own. That's not something mm -hmm. that most people would support regardless of how pro-choice they are. Um, right. So it, there's a reason why um, it is kind of, it's suppressed information. And it is, it is so hard to believe. People tell me all the time, oh, that's conspiracy theory. And it's like, okay, mm -hmm. but these are like NIH funded research projects. It's yeah, like, totally <laughs> right. public. And but it, it just, it wow. is so unbelievable sounding like live dismemberment abortions on a monthly basis for just one project. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound real, but it is. And mm -hmm. this, these are, this is the most egregious aspect of abortion extremism in our nation today. This is the, the thing that really everyone in the pro-life movement, in my opinion, should be rallying around. It is mm -hmm. the lowest hanging fruit um, where we can reach our opposition and say, look, there have to be limits. And, and we see like Tulsi Gabbard has come out recently and she's a Democrat and she um, introduced two anti-abortion bills uh, just before uh, leaving Congress. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that's you know, a sign that even though we ha things have gotten so extreme um, mm -hmm. on the federal level, there is so much grassroots support within the Democratic Party to see mm -hmm. um, some visibility come to the horrors of late-term abortion. Um, and I think that, you know, Tulsi's Born Alive bill and um, the, the pain-capable bill, both of those would address um, fetal tissue research. And it's important to note also that the Fetal Tissue Research Ethics Board that was set up by the Trump administration is governed by HHS, and that absolutely will go away um, mm -hmm. under a pro-abortion HHS led by Xavier Becerra. Wow, that is so interesting. That's, yeah, it's super alarming. And can you, um, I know that the Trump administration did do, a, they did take a little bit of action on this. They did, um, I think they did stop some funding, but some of this still remained, right? What was the, what was the breakdown there? Well, the halting was funded for any new um, project requests, any new grants that were okay. um, asked, um, but and okay. that's why the, the ethics board was set up and they were yeah. able to successfully reject, uh, I think the first um, and all of the uh, requests that they've gotten for funding for fetal tissue research. So we're really pleased so okay. far with the work that the, um, the ethics okay. board has done. But yeah. yeah, some of those those projects 
have continued. And now, of course, our concern is that they will not only continue, but they will flourish. Okay, got it. Well, yeah, so, and to bring that back to Becerra, I mean, this is the concern, right? Is like, if if Xavier Becerra is confirmed, which we anticipate that at this point, it looks pretty likely that he will be, um, that this is who, all of this will go away. This, the, the policies that they have that are standing currently on, you know, rejecting government funding of fetal tissue research and uh, this ethics board, that will, that will be gone. Um, in addition, of course, to all the other things that I'm sure uh, the things that will be implemented across the board. So shifting, you know, changing gears a little bit, but again, along the same lines, um, one of the things that I believe Xavier Becerra, well, actually we know he supports because he has also pursued legal action against, um, uh, I'm sorry, he, he defended or is, has defended the um, Obamacare case uh, with the Little Sisters of the Poor um, in requiring them to cover abortion and birth control in their uh, in their healthcare coverage, I believe. Am I understanding that correctly? I believe I that's right. I think it's just birth he, control. Okay, just birth control. Okay, so he um, he's been involved in that, but I think um, I think the concern as well is that we'll see more pursuit of federal funding of abortion just across the board. And that's a Hyde Amendment issue, um, which I know I recognize we're kind of jumping all over the place here, but there are a lot of things that I think will happen right off the bat um, come January 20th. And these are all on the list, right? Is that we'll start to see Congress will do whatever they can to do away with the Hyde Amendment um, in appropriations. And then uh, Xavier Becerra will probably be confirmed um, and some of these other things. So can you talk a little bit, Teresa, about um, you know, from the perspective of a Democrat, are do you all support the Hyde Amendment, and what um, what are some of the concerns there if we see Democrats try to do away with this uh, with this um, this restriction on funding abortions at the federal level? Yeah, I, the Hyde Amendment has saved more than two million lives, disproportionately black and brown lives, disproportionately from marginalized groups. And this mm. concept that that we can do away with this life-saving amendment um, and that somehow we can expect uh, communities of color to shoulder more abortions um, than they are now and more mm -hmm. obviously than the white community is extremely racist. Um, it, it's just, and on top of that, of course, the pro-choice lobby is attempting to paint um, the repeal of Hyde as like mm -hmm. an answer to racism, which is just mm -hmm. unbelievable. Like you're literally saying that millions of black and brown people that exist today um, and, and who are living today actually like we're probably better off without them. Like that, that mm -hmm. is incredibly offensive. Like it's, yeah. it's it's racist, it's classist, and we we have to protect people from abortion coercion. And I, I just find it so shocking that the abortion industry, well, maybe not the industry, but most pro-choice people are just unwilling to recognize that racism and that um, abortion coercion happen within the concept of abortion. Um, yeah. You know, people are so quick to recognize that racism exists in healthcare, um, yeah. but but yet like unwilling really to see how that racism ultimately trickles down into the abortion industry and to the abortion clinics. And that yeah. ultimately becomes more and more pressure on 
people of color to choose yeah. abortion and Medicaid coverage of abortion is going to encourage that. We know mm -hmm. from the most pro-abortion statistics out there that at least two out of every 100 girls entering the clinic are being forced against their will to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. And if, if we don't have, if we repeal the Hyde Amendment, it is going to, there are going to be millions of coerced abortions um, mm -hmm. without proper protection. And really, I mean, we we're just expecting the abortion industry to manage that on their own. They yeah. cannot be trusted. And yeah. um, the Hyde Amendment protects everyday people from being victims of state coerced abortion. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. So a lot coming up. I mean, what's your, what's your approach going into, um, going into the next month? And I, I know you mentioned to me that you'd be in DC in the next couple of weeks, but I don't know if you want to actually share what you're going to be doing or not, but, um, what's, what's your approach, you know, uh, coming as we head into this, not just a democratic administration, but also a democratic controlled house and Senate as well. Well, we want to do a few things. We want to aggressively recruit pro-life Democratic candidates across mm -hmm. the country um, mm -hmm. in a way that we haven't before. Um, and we want to raise millions of dollars to support these candidates mm -hmm. and to, mm -hmm. to really resist the abortion industry's uh, ability to, to primary them with you know, mm -hmm. their millions of dollars. Um, mm -hmm. So that's going to be really important. In terms of Hyde, we only have to flip six Democrats to save it in the House. Um, so we are absolutely, you know, identifying those targets and, and, you know, attempting to develop those relationships and ensure um, that we can, we would love to see it stopped, like any repeal effort stopped in the House. And, um, yeah. and then of course, if it gets to the Senate, we're, we're counting on our pro-life Democrat, our last congressional pro-life Democrat, Joe Manchin, yeah. Um, to come through. Yeah. He's got a 100% pro-life record from this last um, cycle. So, you know, we're hopeful yeah. um, that he is going to be the one to really um, put a spotlight on pro-life Democrats and to save the Hyde Amendment from a left-leaning perspective so that hopefully other mm -hmm. left-leaning people can see that this is consistent uh, with our democratic yeah. values and that we don't have to change who we are um, or the types of policies that we support um, in order to um, to embrace a consistent life ethic. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for everything you do. It is not. It would not be easy to be a pro-life Democrat, as I'm sure it's not. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I think it's it's always great to hear your perspective, and I think that especially coming from where you are coming from, you really are seated in a particular position that, like you said, you can have conversations that I think people wouldn't be wouldn't be open to having with someone like me or you know a lot of the other people that we see in the pro-life movement who are both um, conservative and and pretty religious as well. So that's pretty um, pretty awesome. Is there anything that you wanted to touch on that we didn't cover? Anything you think needs to be on people's radars or you know over the next few weeks? That's a great question. I should have thought of that beforehand. No, that's okay. Um, <laughs> that's okay. No <laughs> I would say just, you know, this is a time when pro-life Democrats are going to need to take the lead in the pro-life movement in a way that we haven't really mm -hmm. before. And mm -hmm. we, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of distrust in the pro-life movement about pro-life Democrats. And I, I obviously I get a lot of negativity about it. Um, but I just really want to encourage people within the pro-life movement to recognize that, you know, 
at a baseline level, we all recognize that the right to life has to be addressed as a whole, like from a united front. We can mm -hmm. fight about the other policy issues and who is right, us, um, in the end, but, <laughs> but like <Yeah. laughs> for now, like we all, I, I just want to encourage us all to recognize that we're in this together and that while, you know, in a lot of ways, I have made sacrifices to, to unite with the pro-life movement um, and to support in ways that I feel comfortable doing and to show unity um, with the greater movement because it's important. Um, and I'm hoping that, I, I wanna encourage other people to do the same for us, to, to know that, yeah. yeah, we are different and that's okay. Like we don't have to be triggered by each other 24 seven, like yeah. to recognize like there's enough of a similarity that we can support each other and, and that we can, want to see each other succeed um in the ways that you know overlap amen. or whatever <laughs> yeah amen oh, i love that that's awesome well thank you so much Teresa. this was so great i love hearing from you on all these things and really appreciate it i'm sure i'll be seeing you soon in the next couple of weeks yeah. probably right <laughs> yeah well i was going to come out for the inauguration but I, I do think that we are likely going to not move forward with that just okay. because of everything that's gone on and and yeah you know likely there won't be protesters let anywhere near yeah. the inauguration but um yeah but i am still planning to come out to the march for life um for now and i really do look forward to seeing you again soon awesome good see you soon thank you so much thank you